It's time to take the quiz. Five questions, five minutes a day, five days a week. Take the quiz every weekday at thequiz.fox and then listen to the quiz podcast to find out how you did. Play, share, and of course, listen to the quiz at thequiz.fox. It's the Media Buzz Meter with Howard Kurtz. So this seems to be the new thing. Celebrity couples getting separated and not telling anybody. Meryl Streep, who I think is the greatest actress of her generation, has revealed that she and her husband of 45 years, Don Gummer, have been separated for some time. Here's the statement to uh, Page Six and to People magazine. Don Gummer and Meryl Streep have been separated for more than six years. And while they will always care for each other, they have chosen to spend lives apart. They met back in 1978, got married six months later. They have four adult children. And uh, in an interview, Meryl Streep, this is back in 2009, said the secret to the marriage was giving each other space. Well, now they have plenty of space. I, I say this is a kind of a mini trend because we just learned days ago that Will Smith and his wife Jada Pinkett Smith the focus of so much attention after Will Smith delivered the slap at the Oscars, uh, also had been separated for several years. And you know what? If they want to keep it private, it's fine with me. But it does seem to eventually come out. Okay, here's the classic clickbait headline. And it got me uh, in the Daily Mail. And I like the Daily Mail. It does a lot of good stuff. Here's the headline on the homepage. Is the future of America in Texas, Dallas, Houston, and Austin are poised to replace New York City, Los Angeles, and Chicago as the largest cities in the U.S.? So I click, and then you see the same headline as the largest cities in the U.S., but not for another 77 years. I mean, come on. That is just uh, shameless. Hey, I hope you had a good weekend. Uh, Most of the Media Buzz segments are online. The one that has gotten the most reaction by far has been the interview with uh, an Israeli TV journalist named Laron Shamam. And, you know, she was so emotional. And I found it so moving, even after watching it back a couple of times as we... uh, we put in subtitles. She had, you know, a, a strong accent, but spe- speaks good English. And she talks about, you know, how hard it is to work when her kids are at home. And when there are air raid sirens, she has to send her pictures, her kids a picture showing that she's safe. And she also talked about some of the atrocities and how difficult that has been and how anti-Semitism and violence has been part of her life since she grew up in Jerusalem. I mean, it was just really something. Uh, but at the top of the show, I delivered a more opinionated and passionate monologue than I usually do. You know, that opening section is called My Two Cents. And I said that the media had badly screwed up, as you've heard me talk about on the podcast. And there's some new news here, so hang on. Uh, badly screwed up by reporting the initial reports that Israel had bombed that hospital in Gaza City. And by the way, uh, Hamas initially claimed over 500 people killed. 
Well, now uh, Western intelligence estimates say it's about 60. It's still terrible. And, you know, I, I, I grieve for the, all the people who lost their lives there. But, of course, it wasn't Israel. But the reason I bring this up is today, and this is very rare, editor's note in the New York Times, recalling that on October 17th, when this happened, the report included a large headline at the top of the Times website, which obviously is very influential, claims by the Hamas government officials that an Israeli airstrike was the cause. Israel subsequently denied being at fault and blamed an errant rocket launch by the Palestinian faction Islamic Jihad, which had in turn denied responsibility. Yeah, right. Uh, I mean, there's so much evidence now. It is just beyond debate. I'm sorry, it is. These are the facts. And the Times recounts, you know, more information came in. Um, Times initial accounts attributed the claim of Israeli responsibility to Palestinian officials, which is Hamas. Hamas controls the government. You can't just say, oh, the Gaza Ministry of Health. However, the early version of the coverage relied too heavily on claims by Hamas and did not make clear that those claims could not be immediately uh, verified. The report left readers with an incorrect impression about what was known and how credible the account was. Then the Times continued to update as more information became available. Given the sensitive nature, the paper says, of the news during a widening conflict and the prominent promotion it received, Times editors should have taken more care with the initial presentation and been more explicit about what information could be verified. Newsroom leaders continue to examine procedures, blah, blah, um, to determine what additional safeguards may be warranted. Well, that's, a, that's basically an apology. That's a pretty big come down. Remember, the New York Times and the Washington Post used to have ombudsmen who every week would write a column of, about the things that they messed up or issues that they had poorly covered or you name it. But those were then... Those positions were then eliminated uh, under the guise of we need to cut costs and, you know, more important to hire more reporters or whatever. Anyway, I credit the Times for doing this. It took days. And, you know, I'm not taking credit for it, but I was one of the more prominent voices saying this is unacceptable. And lots of criticism, of course, from other quarters. The reason this is important is, I mean, look at the real world consequences and nobody's been held accountable. The leaders of Egypt, Jordan, and the Palestinian Authority canceled planned meeting with President Biden when he was in Tel Aviv based on something that turned out to be false. It was propaganda. It was not true. Uh, then all of those um, large protests across the Middle East. Now, some of these people don't want to believe the facts. So all the facts have come out. I won't belabor what those are, but Israeli intelligence... And U.S. intelligence have a lot of it. There's a TV station that has the footage of the errant rocket taking off near the hospital. But a lot of damage has been done. I mean, the people in the Arab world will always remember this based on the initial accounts by the Times and others, and certainly in Mideast media, that Israel was to blame when that is a complete lie. All right, what else is going on in the war? Um, let's see here. 
Israel seems to be intensifying its uh, aerial attacks, but no ground invasion yet. Israel said today it struck hundreds of targets in the Gaza Strip and also attacked Hezbollah positions to the north in Lebanon. And President Biden, along with the leaders of Britain, Canada, France, Germany, and Italy, urged Israel to protect citizens as it defended itself. And U.S. officials, which is the Biden administration, advising Israel to delay to delay a ground invasion of Gaza, to allow more time for hostage negotiations and more humanitarian aid. Fortunately, thanks to the president's efforts, uh, the second convoy of trucks with food, water, and medicine is entering Gaza through the border crossing with Egypt. And that's a relief, although it, you know it's going to take some time to make an impact on this territory of two million people. As far as the ground invasion, I don't know if Israel has delayed it because it's planning out what to do. It's worried about uh, having to fight a two-front war with both Hezbollah and Hamas. Um, additional training is needing, but clearly, you know, over the weekend, Israeli officials in interviews changed their rhetoric and they said it's imminent, it's got the green light, you know, essentially saying any minute now, and it still hasn't happened. Um, so it seems to me that there are strategic or other reasons why this ground invasion hasn't happened yet. And, you know, it may happen in a few days and then the point will be moot. And you could say, well, maybe they're having second thoughts because they'll be blamed for so many civilian casualties, except I don't know if Bibi Netanyahu can back down, uh, having not only said himself that there will be an invasion and that Hamas will be destroyed, but sending out many of his top aides and diplomats to say this on American TV. I don't think he can just say, never mind, whether it's the right course of action or not. Um, and one other point about the war, although these humanitarian aid trucks are coming through, and as I said earlier, they have food and water and medicine, they do not have fuel. And what Israeli officials say is that they're not going to send fuel because they're concerned that the Washington Post puts it militants. Will you stop with the word militants? These are terrorists that behead people, that kill children that take civilians hostage. What do you have to do to not be called a militant? I, I just flip out when I see that word in news stories based on the videos we've all seen. Okay, uh, they're concerned the militants could use fuel for more attacks. IDF spokesman uh, said in a briefing today um, that they will not send fuel for that reason, we have the means from the air to ensure this, meaning if uh, any of these convoys contain any fuel, they'll be stopped or bombed or something. But the UN Relief Agency says that without fuel, um, hospitals can't keep the lights on or life-saving machinery on. People can't travel, uh, despite the fact that Israel warned them and at least a half million 
uh, Gaza residents have evacuated their own homes in the north to go south. But, you know, fuel is is a dual-use product. And that's the dilemma here. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Kudlow on Fox Business is now on the go for podcast fans. Get key interviews with the biggest business newsmakers of the day. The Kudlow podcast will be available on the go after the show every weekday at foxbusinesspodcasts.com or wherever you download your favorite podcasts. All right, number two. I talked about this with Peter Ducey a little bit on Media Buzz yesterday. My question was, is Joe Biden now a wartime president? And Ducey said yes. He said, in fact, you know, they didn't have any briefings last week and everything was focused on the war. And that's the news they wanted to make and that's delivered on the part of the White House. And I think, I think two things about this. One, obviously Biden didn't plan it this way. But for him to go to Israel after having been to another war zone in Kiev, and for Biden to be pushing this legislative package of $100 billion, most of it for Israel and Ukraine, as well as lesser amounts for Taiwan and border security, uh, shows that he has embraced his role, not just as a world leader, which kind of comes with the territory when you're the commander-in-chief, but as... America saying we can't allow either Ukraine or Israel, both democracies attacked by neighboring countries and territories, to fall. It's unthinkable. And, and there are no U.S. troops in combat, but a lot depends on these now two wars with fear, of course, that the Middle East war especially with these attacks on Hezbollah and responding to attacks by Hezbollah against Israel, that we are already on a slippery slope toward a much wider war. But my second thought is, while I think this reshapes opinion of Biden, that yes, he's 80 years old, but he also has experience that has enabled him to very deftly in my view, and in the view of even some conservative commentators and others who strongly support Israel, that he's been able to has been able to handle this so far uh, extremely skillfully. I mean, he was the chairman of the Senate Foreign Relations Committee, obviously eight years as vice president, and knows many of the world leaders. But I don't think it's going to help him in the election all that much because. In the end, I mean, unless the entire world is at war, in the end, it's the economy, stupid. So here's the New York Times with a piece examining this, saying that Biden's actions have given Democrats hope that he can persuade skeptical voters to view him in a new light. But strategists from both parties say even if Biden successfully steers his country through the latest international crisis, any political lift that he might enjoy could be short-lived. Perceptions of a bad economy, some would say there is a bad economy, but unemployment is at a remarkably low rate, and inflation, unfortunately, is still with us, have continued to drag down his re-election prospects. And it's, you know, the first thing that came to my mind, and this is in the Times piece, 
George H.W. Bush, after winning the Gulf War in 1991, his approval rating was 90%. I mean, something that would just be unheard of in today's more partisan times. And you know, what he did was he, he, with incredible skill, put together an international coalition to defeat Iraq after it invaded Kuwait and to drive the Saddam's forces out of Kuwait. And then he proceeded to lose the election to Bill Clinton. Biden's polling numbers have admired in dangerous territory since he oversaw the chaotic American military withdrawal from Afghanistan. White House push to promote Bidenomics has done little to convince voters. True. Um, Several voters interviewed on Friday were skeptical of Biden's call to send not just $14 billion to help Israel, but $60 billion more for Ukraine. Oh, here's a couple of quotes. Says Samantha Moskowitz, 27-year-old psych student in Georgia, said the prospect of sending billions to Israel and Ukraine makes me anxious, especially where our economy is right now. Now, a Fox News poll found 68% sided with Israel. Quinnipiac polls, 76% of voters said supporting Israel was in the national interest of the United States. So it's true, the nature of the presidential campaign could change if the conflict in Israel continues to dominate the news for weeks and months. But even weeks and months doesn't take you to the fall of 2024, and it's hard to imagine the war that was inflicted on Israel going on for another year, but you never know. So now the Times says Biden could be presenting himself as a wartime president, But that prospect also carries political risks. What if the death toll continues to rise in Gaza? What if the whole thing ends up being a failure? And Biden has a lot of influence, and the United States has a lot of influence, but they can't control matters in the Middle East. Uh, Here's Politico, a similar piece. For Senator Chris Coons, one of Biden's closest allies, President's wartime mission to the Middle East and Republican dysfunction in Washington, which we'll get to, of course, offered the starkest of split screens. Um, Kuhn said that Biden's uh, quick trip to Israel was not about the 2024 election, but in the same breath, he laid out in lavish detail just how telling it was that while Biden was in Tel Aviv assuring Israelis that America had their backs, the GOP was literally falling apart on Capitol Hill. Quote, the contrast of Republicans could not be sharper, says Chris Coons. And then it gets into Donald Trump, and he's kind of stopped with that rhetoric, calling Hezbollah very smart, criticizing Bibi Netanyahu just days after the war started. President Biden's political advisors are not oblivious to these dynamics. They are leery of appearing to politicize the Middle East crisis, with the lives of American and Israeli hostages at stake. But both on and off the record, Biden advisors say they see the opportunity, or it's clear that they see the opportunity, uh, presented by this unexpected crisis. And speaking of hostages, you know, like everybody else, I'm thrilled that the mother and daughter from Illinois were released by Hamas 
And it turns out, because I was trying to figure out, well, they're not the sickest or the oldest or, you know, why them? They are relatives of longtime NBC correspondent Martin Fletcher on his wife's side. And clearly, that's the reason those two were picked. But there were over 200 more hostages, uh, most of them Israeli, some Americans. And what Hamas did, it's manipulative, just like releasing that hostage video by a 21-year-old woman. Oh, you see, we're not heartless. We're going to, uh, you know, because obviously it gets a huge amount of coverage. But on another level, it seemed to me that the press was kind of used for Hamas propaganda purposes by the release of this mother and daughter. I am so happy that they are out, but to release only two out of, I think it's 220 is the latest estimate, is just a drop in the bucket. Number three, as you undoubtedly know, House Republicans voting late Friday to remove Jim Jordan as their nominee. Remember, he had won that secret ballot. For a speaker, after three rounds in which Jordan kept losing votes, in the initial round, 20 Republicans opposed him. By the third round, 25 Republicans opposed him, despite the fact that he was favored by Donald Trump. The real question now is, I think nine Republicans are running for speaker. What they really need is somebody who hasn't ticked anybody off, meeting who hasn't done much of anything, maybe who hasn't been there that long, as a compromise choice. Because, as the Washington Post observes, members from opposite ends of the Republican conference, meaning the hardline conservatives on one hand and the somewhat more moderate conservatives on the other hand, suggested that now that each wing has taken down the other's preferred choice in Steve Scalise and Jim Jordan. They might be able to have a fresh start this week. So the Republicans were just exasperated. It was a very heated meeting on Friday as they voted 112 to 86 to remove Jordan. There was just no way he was going to get to the magic number of 217. And now the question is, can any Republican get to the magic number of 217? Can they put aside their differences and their anger and their frustration? And there was a lot of frustration at Jordan allies, as I have been telling you. Um, Huge backlash against Jordan allies who have left, uh, sent uh, texts to even the spouses of members Uh, saying, you know, your husband will never hold political office again. At least three or four um, members of Congress, Republican members of Congress, have received what they describe as credible death threats. I don't blame Jim Jordan for that, but it's just the whole thing got out of control. And it got really ugly. But keep in mind the the same reason that Kevin McCarthy is no longer Speaker, the same reason that Steve Scalise couldn't get a promotion from Majority Leader, and now Jim Jordan is that they can't lose more than three Republican votes. And given the the divisiveness in the House, uh, I don't know, can anybody run this show? Can anybody play this game? So I won't go through all the names of people who have raised their hand now to be Speaker, but Tom Emmer, who is from Minnesota, and he's the majority whip. And a lot of Republicans have been talking about him as a possible consensus candidate. But Donald Trump has made clear through his allies that he does not want Emmer to be speaker. 
And that alone, again, given that margin I just told you about, can't lose more than three, may be enough to sink Emmer's candidacy. Um, the reason Trump doesn't like the guy, he voted to certify the results of the 2020 election rather than saying it was stolen and Trump lost. And they don't have much of a relationship. The Emmer forces counter that, you know, he supported Trump in the last two campaigns and that shouldn't be an issue. Also, Byron Donalds uh, has announced his candidacy. If he won, he would be the first African-American speaker of either party. Uh, Also, Kevin McCarthy endorsed Emmer. That might help him. On the other hand, McCarthy gave a nominating speech for Jordan on the third round and it didn't help at all. So, you know, the clown show continues. I mean, you know, it's not my rhetoric. Every Republican I see interviewed on TV says we look horrible. Uh, we're in a really bad place, said McCarthy. It's been something like 17 days now without a speaker, meaning the House is paralyzed. Can't vote on aid to Israel. Can't vote on aid for Ukraine. Can't do anything. How long is this going to go on? The answer, nobody knows. Oh, one little uh, other point here. Uh, Too little, actually. Uh, Don Bacon, the congressman from Nebraska, whose wife received, uh, you know, a somewhat threatening text, said that after that, she is sleeping with a loaded gun. She said, I slept really good and I had a loaded gun. So there were, it was some ugly phone calls. Uh, I guess the, these are threatening phone calls, uh, not just the uh, text I referred to. One was a voicemail as well. And let's see what Politico has on this. I'm concerned about where we go from here, said McCarthy. It's astonishing to me, and we are in a very bad position as a party, you think? Um, anyway, then it goes through other names, Kevin Hearn, you know, many of whom you probably haven't heard of. And that's fine. You know, instead of having these national figures who tend to be divisive or at least seen as uh, favoring one faction or another, um, maybe the best choice is is a person who hasn't been there that long. And as I said, hasn't ticked off more than three Republicans. Really something. And when it looked like Jordan really had a good shot at being speaker, the Washington Post ran a lengthy, you know, deep dive piece interviewing um, wrestlers at Ohio State who were there from the late 80s to the early 90s when Jim Jordan was a coach. And there was a tremendous sex scandal involving the team doctor who molested scores of male students and athletes, especially wrestlers. Jordan has always insisted that he didn't know about this behavior. Others said that he did know. But, you know, this has been reported on many, many times. It has never been proven. Um, And in an interview with The Post, Jordan said, every single coach has said the same thing I have. Countless wrestlers have said the same thing I have other athletes. If there had been something wrong, I'd have done something. Okay. Hey, let's pause right there. The buzz meter continues right after this. Story number four. 
it's now not just Sidney Powell. Kenneth Chesborough, the architect of the fake elector scheme, also took a plea bargain in the Georgia criminal case. And although he's not as well known as Sidney Powell, he might have more firsthand knowledge from interactions with President Trump. I mean, the question for the Georgia case is how much firsthand knowledge do both of these defendants who've now pleaded guilty, they said, we did it, we broke the law, we committed fraud. And both get no jail time, both get probation. How much firsthand knowledge do they know have of what Donald Trump said and did as president? We will find out. Presumably, prosecutors would not have uh, offered these sweetheart deals. You know, there were fines and so forth, but basically to get out of jail card in return for testimony, obviously against Trump and Mark Meadows and Rudy Giuliani and others. So, Emails obtained by the New York Times show that Chesborough was considering not only the legality of various maneuvers related to the elector's scheme, but also their political ramifications. One email chain included messages from John Eastman, another conservative lawyer who's a defendant in this Georgia case. Chesborough said, you know, we may not win in court. I'm paraphrasing here. um, But it could help us turn things around politically. And uh, Trump posted on True Social today uh, his first real response to these plea bargains. He only dealt with one of the uh, co-defendants. Sidney Powell was one of millions and millions of people who thought and in ever-increasing numbers still think, correctly, that the 2020 presidential election was, and then we get the all caps, rigged and stolen, again spelled with two L's, and our country is being absolutely destroyed because of it. Despite the fake news reports to the contrary, and without even reaching out to ask the Trump campaign, Ms. Powell was not my attorney and never was. Except at one event she was introduced as his attorney, it sort of doesn't matter whether she was helping him officially or unofficially. Uh, Trump particularly goes after, um, oh, that's a different New York Times story. Can't even fit them all into the podcast, uh, the people that he is, um, shall we say, sharply criticizing. But this is the first claim I've heard that Sidney Powell was not an attorney for President Trump. And as I say, I don't think it matters. But at the, uh, just to give you the the scope of what was going on, and they ultimately concluded that she was too out there to continue being part of the team. But before that happened, President Trump very strongly considered making her a special counsel to deal with vote fraud. Special counsel for voter fraud. And now she's admitted to voter fraud. All right, just to wrap things up here. Number five, a little bit of action on Twitter. So Elon Musk, who runs X, has removed the gold verified badge from the New York Times account. And he's taken a number of whacks at the time, saying it's all left-wing propaganda and so forth. So why was that? The badge was the only symbol distinguishing the Times' 55 million follower account from imposters, 
amid two major global conflicts in Israel and Ukraine. X has hosted and helped amplify a flood of false information related to the Israel-Gaza war, some of which Musk has endorsed. Okay, so here's the Washington Post. The badge was removed Tuesday without notice, said a person familiar with the change. Washington Post, Wall Street Journal, AP, CNN, Bloomberg, and others still had their gold badges as of a couple days ago. Times accounts related to coverage of world news, health, and other subjects still show their verified badges, but not the New York Times itself with its 55 million followers. Ah, after this story was published, says the Washington Post, the New York Times' main account was given a blue verified badge. Times spokesman said X continues to provide no information or explanation for any of these moves. Now, I have to admit I'm not quite sure the difference between a blue verified badge and a gold verified badge. Gold sounds more valuable just because, I don't know, it's gold. But if Musk is going to do things, and you know, this is not some low-level flunky. The badge from the New York Times account, with its huge following, doesn't get, doesn't t- get taken away without Elon Musk, who's, you know, as I said, been sparring with the paper, uh, signing off. It just doesn't happen. And he's talked about free speech and he's talked about transparency. So, okay, if you don't think the paper deserves a badge to assure people that this is the real account and not some parody account and not some propaganda account, then you, Elon, should use your platform to explain why, or otherwise people are going to think this is a petty and partisan on your part. <laughs> it's funny, I began the podcast by ripping the New York Times and then talking about the editor's note on the hospital bombing, for which at least I gave the paper some belated credit, and now I'm ending defending the Times against the uh, mercurial temperament, shall we say, of Elon Musk. Great to have you along on the ride. I'm noticing that on Mondays I have so much to catch up on between two wars and no speaker and everything else. It just seems like the news just keeps on coming in waves, almost like a tsunami. So I try my best to get as much in as I can. And I'll do it again tomorrow. Hope to see you then with more BuzzMeter. Listen ad-free on Fox News Podcasts and via Apple Podcasts, and Prime members can listen to this show ad-free on Amazon Music. Hi, everybody. It's Brian Kilmeade. I want you to join me weekdays at 9 a.m. East as we break down the biggest stories of the day with some of the biggest newsmakers and, of course, what you think. Listen live or get the podcast now at briankilmeadeshow.com.